The Tom Woods Show, episode 1893. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Hey folks, Tom Woods here. This is going to be a long episode, but I don't think you're going to be bored. I'm rather pleased with this episode because a chunk of it, a big, big chunk of it, is drawn from a talk I gave, oh my goodness, 10 years ago, 2011, in Bozeman, Montana. I I think it might have been their Lincoln Day dinner, which is a big tradition that the Republican Party has. And the Republicans there invited me to speak. And this was a huge event. The senators from Montana were there. All the like state legislators were there. The governor was there. It was a big deal. C-SPAN covered it. And I was talking about themes in my book, Rollback. And you can still get that. You get the Kindle version. And I'm pretty sure there's an audiobook version. I can't even remember anymore. But TomWoodsAudio.com will get you to Audible. And you can look up the, the free um, audiobook version. If you've never been on Audible before, you sign up for it, get a free audiobook. And then even if you cancel, you can keep the free audiobook. So you can get uh, Rollback that way. Anyway, this covers a lot of themes, and this is not the kind of material you get in school. So I'm going to play this for you, and then I have a little bit of commentary afterwards. So I think there'll probably be a couple of episodes of the Tom Woods Show this week that'll be a little shorter than usual. So this one will be a little bit longer, and then it all comes out even. So having said that, here we go. Hope you enjoy it. I would also like to thank C-SPAN for being here to record these remarks for Book TV one of these days soon. We'll see when it gets aired, so you know, don't jump up and down on your cell phone and say, hey, I'm on TV now because they're just taping it. But in the interest of that audience, I will forego any further banter and get right down to, to business. What I'm going to talk about tonight is a myth. It's a multifaceted myth. It's a myth we all were taught, we all imbibed in the sixth grade. And I think even the best of us in our heart of hearts still cling to some portion of this myth. And that myth runs something like this. That government is composed of wise, selfless public servants, innocently pursuing the common good. And that were it not for these people, where would we be? Well, we'd be helpless, wandering boobs. We'd have no art in our society. Every artist would put down his paintbrush if it were not for Joe Biden. We'd have no science. We'd all be ignoramuses. All our limbs would be blown off by exploding consumer products. Our kids would be working in a mine for a dollar a day. And the economy would be run by short men with white mustaches running around carrying sacks of money with dollar signs on. Now, didn't we all kind of get this, right? We all got that. And that story is superficially plausible. I understand why people believe it. I'm not arguing that people are stupid for believing this. What else would people believe? This is what we're fed all the time. Now, if I were running a racket like the government in Washington, this is precisely what I would want you poor souls to think. That sure, you've got to fork over a lot of your money to me, and you may not like it, but gosh, think of where you'd be without me. It'd be so terrible and unthinkable. It'd be a law of the jungle, a doggy dog, and so, you know, you got to just grin and bear it. That's exactly what I would want you to think. But now let's suppose for a minute, let's suppose for the sake of argument that instead of being educated in government funded schools, which most Americans are. Suppose what would happen if people were educated in schools funded by Walmart, and every day the kids went into their Walmart funded school, and up on the wall they saw all the CEOs of Walmart, 
over the years, and they were taught to sing songs to the CEOs of Walmart, and they were taught how indispensable these people are, all the progress we've seen in civilization is due to these people on the wall, and every year, they, you know, they wave incense in front of the Walmart CEO's images, and, and every year there's a special day the kids get off from school so they can go home and meditate on the greatness of the Walmart CEO's and where we all be without them. Now, if that were the case, wouldn't we say, Man, this is kind of creepy. I mean, you know, maybe there were some decent Walmart CEOs, but I'd rather think that we would have gotten by all right, you know, without this sort of arrangement. But as soon as it's U.S. presidents up on the wall, well, we believe the whole package. Oh, where would we be without President so-and-so? We'd all be dead in a ditch somewhere with no limbs, and people would be ground up in the sausages. I mean, this is what we got, and we get this day in and day out, and I'm basically making it like my life's work to repeal this whole way of thinking, basically that's what rollback is about. It's not really a book about cutting the budget, although that is part of it. But what I'm saying is it's not enough to cut the budget, as hard as that would be. What we really need to cut out is the propaganda that yields us a budget like this, that, make, that leads the people to believe they'd be helpless and impoverished, it would be terrible if the government ever cut back. Well, that's why we can't make any progress, because everyone's trained to think this way. That's the root of the problem. That's where we need to go. It's, a, it's an educational issue. Now, having said that, I do want to say a little something about the picture that we face. And of course, behind me here, we've got the usdebtclock.org website, which is pretty depressing, of course. But I believe there is, if not an open bar, at least a cash bar. So <laughs> drown our sorrows later. But having said this, I do want to... I do want to talk about just some specifics about what's, what's going on here. Because if we reject this idea of government, we reject this idea of our helplessness and all that, then perhaps the fiscal crisis we're facing is an opportunity to be embraced rather than a calamity to be deplored. I mean, maybe the outcome of this will be the restoration of some kind of free society. And yes, there is going to have to be some substantial change. They can't keep kicking this particular can down the road. I mean. Even in the best scenario, assuming we have a robust recovery from our current malaise and interest rates stay super low, even with these heroic assumptions, the government's own figures tell us that by 2020, the U.S. government will be paying nearly a trillion dollars a year just in interest payments on the national debt. That's in the best scenario, and I rather doubt we're going to see the best scenario. And incidentally, I say this not as someone who's always pessimistic and, you know, I, the glass is always half empty to me. I'm just looking at the figures, and these are figures that would not be disputed by anyone. It's not like people would come along and say, now wait a minute, Woods is misleading you because the real figure is X, and he's saying it's Y. There is no disputing this. This is based on sources which are easily consulted. We have the problem of the entitlement programs. The unfunded liabilities of Social Security and Medicare are greater than twice the GDP of the whole world. That's a teensy-weensy bit of a problem. I would say. And yet, the best they can come up with in Washington, like we're arguing over a $38 billion cut, which turns out to be phony baloney anyway. As I've said before, this is like taking 10 cents off a trip to the moon. And that's, just, that's the boldest of what we're seeing, or more or less the boldest. All right, so what can we do? I mean, we've got an aging population, we've got a demographic crisis that's about to hit. It's funny, by the way, we've been talking about healthcare a little bit tonight, and we sometimes hear on the left, oh, we should imitate the great European systems, which are all doing so well. But it's interesting 
it's interesting to note that when you speak to the finance ministers of these countries, which I'll confess to you, I haven't done that personally, but I know of people who have, they more or less confess that the demographic, the, the aging of the populations of those countries is just going to be a tsunami for those. It's going to completely destroy those systems. They all know that. They're not idiots. They just act like them on TV. But they know that. But, but their view is that I, the finance minister, will be safely retired by the time that happens. So, I mean, this is going to be hitting everybody. So what are we going to do? What could we do about it? Could we tax our way out of it? Well, let's leave aside the moral issue involved in, in taxation and just the practicality of it. A little-known statistic that we have seen since the Korean War is that you know tax rates have gone up and tax rates have gone down. But regardless, the federal government has rarely been able to get from the private sector much more than 20% of GDP in terms of revenue from the taxpayers. So it's true, they could get, they could squeeze out perhaps a little bit more than they are now, but not nearly enough to solve this problem. That, that's the point. There seems to be an upper bound for various reasons beyond which the federal government simply cannot confiscate. Okay, we could borrow our way out because I think a lot of, maybe there'll be a lot of countries that say, gosh, we got trillions burning holes in our pockets. Let's go invest it in like almost like 0% return U.S. government debt. That sounds like a way to go. Well, obviously the terrible, horrific catastrophes that have befallen Japan suggest that Japan's by and large going to be a net liquidator of U.S. debt. China's got its own demographic problems coming up. Uh, largely self-inflicted because of its one-child policy. It's going to want to also spend money on its own industrialization. So, you know, these are problems. There aren't going to be enough suckers in the world. And then finally, they could print the money. But as I, you know, as I explained earlier, you know, my seven-year-old already kind of sees through that. Which goes to show, I feel like a panel of seven-year-olds would be almost better than the Supreme Court and the Federal Reserve Board put together. level, things aren't much better. There's some of how, how could they be worse, really? But we've got a lot of states on the verge of bankruptcy. We've got seven states where their pension program is going to go bust in 2020, another 13 states by 2025. And that assumes, by the way, that they get an 8% annual return, which there's a slight chance that might not happen. <laughs> My favorite, though, favorite indicator that there are problems. Last year, the governor of New York at the time seriously considered a plan to bail out the pension fund by borrowing from the pension fund. <laughs> you have hit a dead end at that point. It's not just us who think there's something a little bit fishy about this. Or the classic example, look at what happened to Detroit. There is your classic case of the left liberals got everything they wanted in Detroit. They got the taxes, they got the regulatory structure, they got the spending, they got everything in their wildest dreams they could have asked for. And what happened in Detroit? General collapse occurred. And it never occurred to any of the architects of that disaster that a general collapse was possible. They just assumed that, you know, there'll always be more suckers to expropriate next year to keep the thing going. You know, things will be, you know, two or three percent different next year, and that'll be it. Never occurred to them. The thing could come crashing down. Since 1950, half the population has fled. And in recent years, a quarter of the schools are closing. The home prices tell the story, though. In 2003, the median home price in Detroit was $98,000. By 2009, that was down to $13,000. You think, wow, they hit rock bottom there. 
No, last year it was 7,000. Now, it's true, you read an occasional article about this, a brief news item, but in proportion to the scale of the collapse, the likes of which we have not seen in American urban history, this story went unreported. Now, meanwhile, what's happening to the young generation? Well, good thing they're all playing video games and getting drunk, or we'd have a revolution on our hands. <laughs> Actually, let me reverse that. I wish we did have a revolution on our hands, of course. But... They're facing. I mean, these poor kids. A poll last year found that 85% of graduating seniors from college are saying they're moving back in with their parents because they have no idea what to do other than that. So we have that problem. We have the fact that these kids, are, when they do get jobs, are going to have to work harder and longer just to stand still, all in order to prop up a system that everyone in this room knows is going to collapse anyway. That's just unjust. That's fundamentally unjust. I don't care what your philosophical position is. There's no way you can defend that system. And so the data that I'm referring to here, and there's much, much more besides, you can find in chapter one of Rollback. And in fact, my publisher put chapter one up at, uh, well, I've got it up at tomwoods.com. What I want to spend the rest of my time talking about, though, is not just these dreary numbers. Again, what I want to talk about is this ideology of dependence, this ideology of helplessness that's been drilled into us to make us these pathetic little nobodies who feel like, well, where would we be if it weren't for Bob Dole and Joe Biden? And no, you know, this is unworthy of a free people for us to think this way. So I want to just go through some of these typical arguments that we get, where we would be without our wise overlords. So for example, poverty. Well, poverty would surely get worse if it weren't for our wise overlords. I mean, they're the ones who have brought about the great conquest of poverty that we've seen over the past 200 years. Well, to the contrary. Since 18, in 1820, 85% of the world's population lived in what economists call absolute poverty. By 1950, that was down to 50%. By the early 1980s, down to about a third. And by 2001, it was down to 18%. So that meant that between 1981 and 2001, for the first time in history, in a two-decade period, we've seen both the percentage and the absolute number of people living in absolute poverty fall. We've never seen anything like this in history. Now, is it a coincidence that we see this kind of progress against poverty at a time when free market economics, albeit not to the extent we would like, has begun to spread around the world? Well, in rollback, I'm explaining what the logical connection is. This is not just a coincidence. It makes absolute sense this is what we should be led to expect, that the market economy would lead to fantastic outcomes like this. In the developing countries, we've seen rise of life expectancy and caloric intake and so on. Now, what about in the U.S.? Well, in the U.S., we're not using the absolute poverty metric. We're using a less desperate uh, U.S. poverty metric. But in the early, in, in 1900, about 95% of the population lived in what today we would consider poverty. By the late 1960s, that was down to about 12 to 14%, and that's where it has stagnated ever since. Now, no. Lyndon Johnson is the one who got the war on poverty started. The funding for those programs really got started in the late 60s. So notice that with hardly any anti-poverty programs to speak of, poverty goes down amazingly in the U.S., and then the government programs step in, and then it stagnates. Now imagine, imagine if those numbers were reversed. Let's imagine we had Lyndon Johnson in 1900, and he gave us the war on poverty programs. And then for nearly seven decades, we had progress against poverty, and then the mean old Republicans 
got rid of those programs and then poverty stagnated. I mean, can you can we just predict what they would say? Well, of course, this goes to show these programs are wonderful and we need them. And where would we be without them? But when reality is exactly the opposite, what do we hear? Crickets. Nothing. No acknowledgement of this at all. Now, by the way, how come in the year 1200 nobody protested poverty? Was that because everybody was living in fantastic wealth in the year 1200? It was because nobody thought poverty could possibly be conquered. Nobody thought that you could possibly... Basically, what people took for granted was you're born into this world into squalid conditions. You're going to live your life basically one bad harvest away from starvation, and then you're going to die. And there's nothing you can do about this. But it's, it's because of the wealth that the market economy made possible that it suddenly occurred to us, maybe we can abolish this. Or at the very least, of course, we will always have the poor with us, but we can seriously alleviate this suffering. Never occurred to anybody before. And in fact, now we live at a material level that wouldn't, it's like out of a science fiction novel. When we consider that in, even in late modern Europe, I mean, for heaven's sake, even the greatest monarchs of the 18th century didn't have flush toilets. I mean, it's a, I mean, they didn't have you know, central heating, I mean, plumbing and whatever. I mean, all these sorts of things we take for granted. Even the, I mean, okay, they had, they had servants. That's true. But the difference between a rich man and a poor man 300 years ago is that the rich man rode in a coach at four and the poor man walked in bare feet. Today, the difference between a rich man and a poor man is that the rich man has a fancy car and the poor man has a beat-up car. But they both have cars. That means there is less inequality than before. In fact, you know what's very interesting? Remember that book, uh, The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck? The Soviet government uh, showed this, the movie version of that in the 1930s as a propaganda vehicle to show how terrible the capitalist West is, look at how poor everybody is. But it backfired on them because the Soviet population watched that movie and couldn't believe the people had a car. <laughs> device I had, okay, this, this smartphone, I can talk to, I can talk to, picture in picture, I can talk to some guy with his face on the screen, you know, in Munich, right now, if I want to, walking down the hall while I'm doing three other things. The Jetsons didn't predict that. In the Jetsons, you actually had to sit in a special chair, and there's a screen there you have to look at. Even the Jetsons couldn't imagine the world, and we take this for granted, like, yeah, any social system could yield this. No, it isn't. It isn't any. It's a system that respects private property and the rule of law and so on and so forth. So in other words, there is, as I said, as I, I showed the book, there is a causal mechanism between the free market and this type of prosperity and this conquest of poverty. And yet we get, there's no credit given to the private sector for this, basically. You know, you read that sixth grade textbook and you think, you know, the private sector is where all the wicked exploiters are. And thank heavens we have the people in the public sector. Uh, well, I suggest that's rather not the case. So it's not enough, though, that the government sector will take credit for advances that are due to the private sector. They will then blame the private sector for things the government did. And I give one, this might sound like a boring example, but it actually isn't. I remember uh, being in grad school in the 90s, and we were hearing about what happened in California. There are rolling blackouts in California, supposedly because of energy deregulation. And boy, this goes to show you crazy capitalist ideologues that we need our overlords in charge of energy or we're gonna have blackouts and blah, 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 blah. Okay. Well, first of all, what deregulation are they talking about? It's true, wholesale prices of electricity, which 
were paid by the state's electric power distributors, they could fluctuate. But the retail prices were fixed. And moreover, it was extremely difficult because of the regulatory barriers to bring new power plants online, and some of them were actually taken offline. And so this is at a time when demand is surging. You've got the voracious demands of the computer industry in California, you've got a growing population, so you get surging demand, and the private sector isn't allowed to respond to that demand. The result is blackouts, and this is blamed on the free market. I mean, that's like out of a George Orwell novel, but we're used to that. Like every day, it's like another page of the George Orwell novel. You know, the poor guy should be getting royalties for, for what, what the New York Times publishes, right? The New York Times doesn't realize that was a dystopian that he was writing about. He wasn't giving us a model to live by. Now, I also talk a little bit about, but I'm going to spare you folks this, the savings and loan crisis of the 1980s, that's supposedly another case of the free market run amok and da 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 But that was a case of an institution husbanded by the government, given an impossible business model when we have an atmosphere of rising interest rates and double-digit inflation. And then they try to ease up the situation of the SNL so that they can get out of that impossible spot, but they keep insuring their deposits. And then they're surprised when they make reckless investments. And then that's blamed on the free market. Even though the government guarantee behind it. Uh, but what I do want to talk about, though, is the, the classic case of government blaming everyone but itself for a failing, and that's the most recent financial crisis. Now, the left typically says that those of us in this room are engaged in special pleading when we try to pin the blame for what we've just endured on the government and or on the Federal Reserve, and that if, if only we weren't wearing our laissez-faire blinders, we would see clearly that this is a failure of capitalism and so on and so forth. All right, well, I talk a little bit about this in my book, Meltdown, which uh, was like my second best, it was a New York Times bestseller two years ago. There's a free chapter of that also at TomWoods.com. But I, I elaborate a bit on this in, in Rollback too. But in Meltdown, I talk a lot about the role of the Federal Reserve and keeping interest rates super low. Interest rates, you think, oh, interest rates, this can't possibly be interesting. No, no, no. Interest rates turn out to be like the most interesting thing in the world because they play a coordinating function in the economy. You can't just intervene in the economy and say, I think interest rates should be even lower, so let's just do it, and I bet there will be no consequences. No, Hayek, F.A. Hayek, who won the Nobel Prize in economics in 1974, parentheses, I realize the uh, Nobel Prize has been a bit poisoned in recent years, but Hayek's win of the Nobel Prize means something because he won it for saying the exact opposite of what the Nobel Committee wanted him to say, but he was arguing that this is the root of the boom-bust cycles, that you interfere artificially with interest rates, sets the economy on a kind of sugar high that it crashes from. But Hayek said interest rates are supposed to act as a break. They're supposed to be a break on our ambitions. They're supposed to say, no, you are setting the economy on an unsustainable path. We don't have the physical resources to complete all the projects we've embarked on, so stop doing it. But we didn't have any breaks starting in 2001. Thanks to Alan Greenspan, we had no red lights. Everything was green. Oh, sure, you have five investment properties with interest-only mortgages and no job. That seems like a sensible thing. And a lot of people did. And people thought that was All I have to do to get rich is buy a house and sit there. And I automatically become wealthy. And people think, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. And this seemed sensible, and this was encouraged by the authorities. In 2001, we're just coming off that dot-com collapse. And Alan Greenspan, chairman of the Federal Reserve System, former saxophone player, has decided, nothing against saxophone players, but it's just so odd that one person 
based on, and he even said this, well, you know, I had this feeling in the pit of my stomach that maybe the federal funds rate should come down by 25 basis points. I mean, it was that creepy. In, in fact, the New Republic had this author, uh, Stephen Glass, maybe you remember in the early 90s. He used to break the most interesting stories. Well, so to speak, Stephen Glass, sorry about that pun. But, um, he used to break the most interesting stories because he made them up, it turned out later. People found out. Like other reporters were thinking, how did he break this story? I never found out. Because he invented the stories, which you could do more easily before the internet. But one story he made up was that some investors on Wall Street had built a little shrine to Alan Greenspan with flowers and candles and stuff, and they would meet together and meditate from it. <laughs> he didn't get caught on that story. People heard that story and thought, yeah, that seems like a sensible thing somebody might do. <laughs> I mean, this was the madness that overtook the country, but particularly during the, the housing thing. During 2001, Greenspan lowers interest rates 11 times. So that's the only, the only recession on record in which housing starts went up. So what conclusion do people naturally draw? Well, I gotta put my money in housing because apparently housing is robust through thick and thin. Best investment you can make. Flipping houses is the best thing you do. I mean, all of this, and then Greenspan says you should take out adjustable rate mortgages and the housing market is fine. And then his successor says the housing market is fine. There's no bubble. Lending standards are robust, said Ben Bernanke. Lending standards are robust. And this guy is like supposed to be one of the major regulators of the banking system. Lending standards are robust. So, you know, the Fed might have played a teensy-weensy role in this, is what I, what I suggest. But then we're told, but deregulation did it, right? Deregulation, you think, okay, I got the C-SPAN audience, you don't want to go into a technical thing like this, but I, I, I don't want to go into technical things. Well, right now, I got them right where I want them. You know, why make them change the channel? They think it's gonna be boring, but it's not. We gotta know this. This is the version of the narrative that we are getting from Washington. We have to be prepared for it. We gotta be able to answer this in our sleep. All right, so what was deregulation? We never, it's just some sinister word. You know, it just kind of suggests like sinister characters skulking you know, around and you know, up to no good. So what does it mean? Well, all right, well, what basically happened with deregulation? Well, over the years, like the major planks of it were getting rid of regulation Q, which put a cap on the uh, level of interest rates that you could charge on a savings account or pay on a savings account. Okay, well, that was like the early 80s. This is not going to cause a worldwide catastrophe three decades later, presumably. We had in the early 90s restrictions on interstate branch banking lifted. Well, from my vantage point, that makes the, the system more stable because now a particular banking system is not so subject to local state-based swings one way or another. They can be diversified with holdings uh, and depositors across the country. Uh, but then the one we hear the most, though, that supposedly caused the problem is the, so the alleged repeal of, of something called Glass-Steagall. And we get this all the time. Now, the reason they mention this is because this is the only act of deregulation that is even remotely, plausibly connected at all to the financial crisis. So they all, they all uh, harp on it. And then it was a little tricky for them when they realized that Bill Clinton signed that and Joe Biden supported it. So the, the villain story doesn't quite work. Then you have to paint the, the horns onto Biden's head and Clinton's head, which is fine with me, but it doesn't work for their story. So what exactly happened with that? What was actually going on with that? Well, just to make this very quick, uh, but I got you know, more details in the book, but by and large, basically what happened was this. In 1933, we got this thing, the Glass-Steagall Act, and it was supposed to separate commercial and investment banking. And that just meant that if you're a commercial bank, you can't underwrite or deal in securities. You can 
Buy them if you think they're going to be a good investment for you. You can sell them if you no longer think they're a good investment or you just need the cash, but you can't be a broker, basically. You can't deal in these things. And investment banks can't take deposits. So we're gonna, and moreover, there can't be the same parent company that owns, that controls both a commercial bank and an investment bank. So it separates these two types of banking. Now in Europe, they never had this restriction and they never had any problems as a result of it. So this was, the only part of this that was lifted in 1999 was that last provision, that an investment bank and a commercial bank can't be controlled by the same holding company. That was lifted, now they could be. That was it. That's the big thing that brought the entire world to its knees, supposedly. Well, it turns out that when you look at the data, this clearly has nothing to do with it, for a variety of reasons, just one of which is that standalone investment banks and standalone commercial banks also blew up and did badly, just as much as ones that happened to be connected. There's, there's, no, there's no clear connection, and as I said, there's, there's much more evidence uh, with regard to this. Uh, and then you look at the sheer size of them, there's no way a commercial bank could possibly bring down an investment bank and so on and on. Um, so by and large, the Obama administration began to abandon this version of the story, to its credit, I will say. Uh, instead of saying deregulation caused it, because I, I suggest there is no repealed regulation that would have prevented this crisis. The banks were always allowed to securitize mortgages, they were always allowed to acquire them and add them to the portfolio, they were always allowed to do this. It wasn't like deregulation made this possible. Well, anyway, I just want to—I want to just uh, move on to some other aspects of things. But that Glass-Steagall thing is a complete red herring. It is a complete red herring. And then beyond that, we get the well. It must be we didn't spend enough on the regulatory agencies. It's always like it's always this narrative that if only our overlords had had the power to crack a few more skulls, then we would like there is no problem that they couldn't have addressed if they had more authority. But in real terms, adjusting for inflation, spending on the regulatory agencies in charge of the financial sector tripled since 1980, did not get cut under George W. Bush. Like everything, blame it on George W. Bush, he must have cut it. I don't know what George W. Bush cut, but certainly wasn't, wasn't these things. They were not cut. And Lawrence Kotlikoff at Boston University counts 115 federal agencies in charge of regulating the financial sector. You'll forgive my skepticism, of the proposition that if only we'd had 116, then we would have seen this thing come. <laughs> because remember, the regulators we did have told us everything was fine. So what do we do, hire more of these bozos? I mean, these are the people, remember, if you graduate from business school at the top of your class, you're gonna go on and run a business. If you graduate at the bottom of the class, you're gonna become a, a government regulator, basically. <laughs> so you know, you're not, they're gonna run rings around you. So the model we're supposed to go with is, well, these regulators who have no financial stake in the outcome, they'll keep an eye on it. But why? Why should we expect them? Why should we not expect them to be as totally clueless as they showed themselves to be during this current crisis? They were relying, first of all, on the risk assessments of a small cartel of government-approved rating agencies. And beyond that, they either grossly misread the condition of the housing market or just misled the public. I mean, remember, Greenspan is saying the housing market was encouraging and Bernanke saying all these crazy things. But even if they had been able to perceive the problem, what are the chances they would do anything about it? It would be extremely politically costly to do anything about this particular one. And I, I quote here the economist Arnold Kling, who says, a regulatory crackdown would have meant taking away a punch bowl filled with more home ownership, particularly among minorities, as well as expansion and profits in the businesses of home building, real estate brokerage, mortgage origination, and Wall Street financial engineering. Well, that's just not gonna happen. 
And then also, we had this so-called prudential regulation to keep the banks from doing crazy things. And so they had these regulations that said the safer the assets you're holding, the less you have to keep in reserve as capital. So the way it worked was for every $100 you've got in standard loans, you've got to keep $10 in capital. For every $100 you have in mortgages, you have to keep only $5 in capital. And for every $100 you have in AAA-rated mortgage-backed securities, you have to keep only $2 in capital. So take a wild guess at which asset class everybody in his uncle fled into, right? Everybody goes into this. So then the thing collapses, and now it's all the worse. Because this type of regulatory apparatus almost mandates herd behavior. Instead of a normal situation where people would have been diversified into a variety of asset classes, everybody's in this. And then we're told, okay, but didn't we have poor management of major financial institutions? Well, no doubt about that. That's why you need to have failure. You have to allow them to fail so the same bozos don't keep doing the same thing. David Stockman on that, the former Reagan budget director, on the myth of TARP. You know, we all would have gone into a black hole, never to be heard from again if it weren't for this and all that. He, he makes mincemeat of that. Uh, you can Google TARP and, and, uh, and Stockman. But okay, so we got this bad, uh, bad leadership. But what we don't hear about is that the current regulatory environment makes it very difficult to do anything about the bad leadership. So insurance companies, pension funds, mutual funds, and banks are simply not allowed to hold more than a very small stake in a particular company. Hedge funds and private equity investors are restricted by regulations that prevent them from acquiring a controlling interest in a bank holding company. But these are the institutions that have a stake in keeping an eye on management and keeping wayward management in line. We're supposed to sit back and hope that regulators who have zero stake in this, they're gonna get their salary no matter what, they might get a raise if, if they don't perceive it in time. It's because they were being deprived of a good salary we got to pay them more. Maybe that's not the most promising model. But because of this government policy, stockholders of these institutions are artificially disorganized and scattered, and management enjoys artificial protection that it would not enjoy on a free market. Okay, now a further point about this myth of government is that it causes us to lose our imagination. We begin to think we can't, once government does something, we can't think of any way it could be done otherwise. And this is why you know, Murray Rothbard used to say, you know, imagine if the government produced and distributed shoes. And then somebody proposed, well, why don't we privatize shoe production? We would never hear the end of this. What? Well, I mean, people have all different size feet. How would we ever provide for that? <laughs> Maybe a private company would produce only left foot shoes. I mean, like, we think of the most convoluted, ridiculous. I mean, it's incredible how little dignity we allow ourselves to have. How helpless we think we'd be. Why would a company produce only, produce only left-handed shoes, you know, left-foot shoes? Why? They have no interest in doing that. Why would they want to do that? But it's the same sort of thing. If you propose privatizing something, he'll immediately resist. No, we couldn't live without this government funding. So, for example, if you're against government funding for the arts, this makes you an opponent of the arts, period, apparently. So we think there would be no arts without government funding. You terrible Philistine, you want to cut government funding. And yet, okay, well, just look at it. Look at the National Endowment for the Arts, okay? That's, what do they get? A couple of hundred million bucks. But private donations of the arts amount in the billions of dollars. So, like, we in our own activities have already refuted this myth. We just don't know. And incidentally, I, I live in Kansas, and the governor, Sam Brownback, is 
trying to eliminate the Kansas Arts Council or whatever it's called, and try to encourage private investors to, you know, donors to fill the gap. And my wife and I once went to a theater in rural Kansas, the Columbian Theater, and we got this email, I'm on their list, and they were panicked. They said, this is terrible. Brownback is going to take our money away. Do you know every year we get $5,000 from the state? <laughs> so they have become so pathetic. They have so little creativity, so little imagination. They think they couldn't like have a bake sale and raise the $5,000. I'll give you the $5,000. If I knew that was the difference between you and closing your door, I'll give you the $5,000. Five thousand bucks. I mean, that's like one, you know, jogathon thing. You know, you get whatever a raffle. I mean, this is pathetic that we think this way. But I want to take on a harder case. Okay, enough of this easy stuff like poverty and the arts and regulation. Let's take on science, right? If it weren't for, I mean, and then so of course all the left wing hate sites. As soon as this airs, you can just imagine what media matters, which always goes after me. They can't actually answer anything I'm saying, by the way. And my biography is at TomWoods.com, which they never link to, because then you might see, well, he's got some credentials. Can't do that. So all the thought control sites will go after me. Crazy Neanderthal is against government science money. Well, okay, but look, I actually have arguments for this. I'm going to share them with you now. And it's basically this. Let's take, for example, uh, Britain in the 19th century. Britain was the most wealthy, industrialized country in the world, home to some of its most illustrious scientists. And you know how much government science funding there was? Zero. Meanwhile, France and Germany spent boatloads on science through the government and fell way behind. Now, let's again do a thought experiment. Suppose it were reversed. Suppose Britain had spent all the money and then did very well. But France and Germany had spent nothing and then did badly. We would never hear the end of it. Aha, it goes to show the difference between good science and no science at all is government funding. But when the opposite, when once again, as usual, reality defies what the statists tell us, we just hear silence. It just never comes up. People don't even know about it. Japan's civil research and development is the most privatized in the world. And yet Japan engages in an, an enormous amount of what's called basic science, which supposedly the free market would never provide basic science because it doesn't yield immediate profits and the fruits of it could just be stolen by a competitor. So why would the free market ever provide it? But it does. It's, 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 it takes place in Japan in industrial laboratories instead of in tax-funded universities. We have bought into this false notion of science, I think ever since Francis Bacon centuries ago, that scientific progress supposedly runs like this. We have basic science, just scientists just sort of working in a laboratory. And that gives rise to discoveries, which then in turn are adopted by private entities, which put them in the service of human welfare. Now, that is a plausible story. I believe that for a long time. But that's actually not how science has, in fact, progressed. What normally happens, in fact, is that applied science builds on applied science, not on basic science. Classic example of this is the steam engine. The steam engine did not emerge from scientists in lab coats. It wasn't that some guy was in a lab somewhere experimenting, and all of a sudden he said, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. I got like a steam engine over here. <laughs> this is not the case. It was practical men adapting pre-existing technology to modern problems. In fact, the science 
had to adapt to the technology because the steam engine was actually more efficient than existing science said it could be. So the science had to change. The Department of Defense years ago did it looked into how many of the 700 key research breakthroughs that led to the development of important weapons systems were attributable to basic science. And the answer was two out of the 700. So applied science built over long on applied science. But the point is that even basic science is supplied more by the free market than it is by governments. If, if you look at uh, percentage of GDP, it's, it's no contest. Private donors way outspent governments in the age before the estate tax decimated incomes. And Terence Keeley explains this in his great book, uh, uh, The Economic Laws of Scientific Research. It's unfortunately very hard to find that, that book. I summarize it a bit, a bit in my, my own here. Uh, and then moreover, I mean, we could just go on, there's a lot more evidence and rationales of why we should expect this to be the case. In fact, he makes a very cogent argument that government funding will always displace more than it replaces. So there'll be less overall spending on science. And this is very counterintuitive, but as I say, I mean, I, I give uh, more support to it in, 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 uh, in the course of the book. Now let's take on a couple more toughies here. I want to say, now obviously I can't take on the whole regulatory apparatus. I mean, this is like required the whole revolution in our, in our thinking. But what I do just want to do is just raise some ideas for reflection. Just throw out some facts that a lot of people just don't perhaps know. Uh, it's not to say that we don't need any oversight of various things. It's just what form does that oversight take? And what sort of agency in our society engages it? But take, for example, OSHA, you know, occupational safety and health. Well, we're, you know, what would be the, the typical narrative about that? Well, before OSHA, everybody's dying on the job because you know, people are standing there on the, on the assembly line and it's so unsafe that they're falling into the grinder and then you know, we're eating hot dogs made out of a guy's leg. <laughs> like we, I mean, we get that constantly. We got that in the Upton Sinclair book and all that, okay? But in fact, first of all, 60% of the uh, injuries on the job are nothing that an employer could do anything about by like 20% of them are like violence on the job, like people beating each other up. Well, I mean, like, it's not like once that happens, you know, it's already going on, not much you can do about it. And then another 40%, and so adding up to the, uh, the, the 60%, is uh, traffic fatalities, like, you know, around during, you know, like you're on the highway or something. So these are not the classic things that we've been led to think of when we think about workplace fatalities. But we don't notice. People say, hey, look, we got OSHA, and then look what happens. Workplace fatalities decline and injuries and so on. But the point is they were already declining at an even faster rate before we got that thing. Now that's not to say, that, oh, maybe OSHA accelerated it or whatever. Again, okay, we talk a little bit about more, more about that in the book, but the point is, I bet most people didn't even realize that, that, we, that progress is already being made because the wealthier the society becomes, the more desirable and possible it becomes to bring about safer environments. That's just a natural uh, part of the evolution of society. Or the, the uh, national uh, Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Surely this must be the reason that we're seeing there being fewer fatalities every year on the highways. 3.5% a year it's going down. But you know what? In the 35 years before we had that agency, you know at what rate fatalities were going down? 3.5% a year? <laughs> now again, we don't hear anything. Not a word. Not a word. 
Not a word. This is entirely due to your wise overlords, and you'd all be dead without them, so shut your mouths. No, I just, I'm just not buying this. And then also, there are countless examples of how the private sector, the bad part of the private sector, uses the regulatory apparatus to its own advantage to hurt its competitors. I mean, just think about, like, for example, anytime there's some industry where there's some government move to ban advertising in that industry, who's advocating that? The biggest established firms, of course. Doesn't hurt them. Everybody already knows about Marlboro. Nobody knows about Joe's cigarette company. Okay, now, okay, kids, if you're watching, don't smoke. But you see my point, right? This is the logic of it is that we tend to think, gosh, what a wonderful public-spirited measure this is. Well, you know what? That's kind of rare, actually. It's usually, like, there's a reason that the most free market political candidates on the national level tend not to get a huge amount of money from big business. It tends to be the case. Because they kind of like the system the way it is now. They're perfectly happy with it the way it is now. So these regulatory bodies very often prop up the established firms. And meanwhile, we have gullible people who think, gosh, where would we be without them? So just one example of this. For a long time, we were told that we have to avoid cutthroat competition. And on that, and cutthroat competition just means like lowering prices for people. So we, we have to, that has to be treated as like the devil. Like that's like Godzilla. We, we don't want that. And so in the name of doing this, every major innovation in retail over the, over the past more than 100 years was fought tooth and nail by existing firms Precisely on these grounds. Well, if we had this innovation, it would lead to cutthroat competition. No, it, it means I would have to get off my lazy you-know-what and work harder to compete with my competitor who's having a sale. So, for example, when we hear about, uh, this is kind of uh, dated these days, but we used to hear jokes about traveling salesmen. The traveling salesman, poor traveling salesman, he was the butt of so many jokes. Talk about a misunderstood poor soul, a traveling salesman. Why did people make jokes about the traveling salesman? And I derived this from uh, some work by Murray Rothbard. Well, okay, the traveling salesman was not liked by a lot of wholesalers because he could get into a town, visit every retailer, and show off his wares, and then get out and win their business. And of course, you know, the established way of doing things doesn't like that. How dare he? Who does he think he is? So the established firms moved to get heavy licensing fees imposed on traveling salesmen. So that, which they couldn't afford to pay. If I'm going to go into this town, I have to pay this fee. So what they would do is they would sneak into town, go to each, to each retail store really quickly, hey, hey, here's my stuff, and then get out before they could be detected. And so because they were operating sort of on the edges of legality, people began to think of them as being slightly underhanded and perverse, even though it seems more underhanded and perverse to make them do this, right, of course. But as usual, our wise overlords are guiltless, and it's the terrible, you know, Traveling salesmen would have to go after. Or department stores. My gosh, department stores were treated like the return of Godzilla when they were introduced. Department stores. How dare these institutions sell multiple products? And to add insult to injury, they're doing it on different floors. <laughs> Who do these people think? And then mail order. Mail order? You're just going to send out a Sears robot catalog and I got my whole storefront here? And so there were, people were encouraged to have large bonfires of the Sears Roebuck catalog, the great enemy of society. Or then it was, you know, whatever, the chain stores, but then it was the discount houses. Now, this is great. For a long time, there were rules in some of the states that a retailer cannot sell a product for less than the manufacturer's suggested retail price. 
Because if they did so, that would be cutthroat competition, and da, da 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 Well, obviously, we all know who was pushing for this law. The retailers, obviously, it was not the general public saying, oh, I'm so sick and tired of sales. Could you please stop marking things down? Oh, horrible. No, no, of course it was the retailers themselves. But by the 1950s, the heroic discount houses popped up, where they were going to offer you the, the low-priced goods, marking them off the manufacturer's suggested retail price, in defiance of the law. And at first, people didn't know what to say, but the establishment was all ruffled. Who are these people? These discount houses. You should read, I, I quoted Rollback, an article from Life magazine, horrified at the discount houses. Because at the discount houses, they're not waiting on you hand and foot. Like you don't go into them and say, why, I need a fan, please. Oh, yes, sir, I'll take you to the fan section. No, no, if you have a question, they'll answer it. But that was how they kept their prices low. And okay, so they didn't always sweep the aisles. So Life Magazine is going, oh, they have unswept aisles, and people are rude in there. I mean, like, they just and they couldn't compute with this sort of thing. So a lot of times, these discount houses were hauled into court, injunctions were brought against them, you've got to stop doing it. But finally, it just became impossible to deal with it. You know, and so today, we have this heroic situation where today, we look at the manufacturers of just the retail price, and we think, what sucker is paying this thing? <laughs> it's the heroic discount houses who stood up against this, this use of the apparatus of coercion and compulsion, namely the state, to benefit certain uh, institutions at the expense of others. All right, well... Let's see how I've got, how I got doing it. Okay, I, I was told I still continue with my regular time, so I, I am going to take advantage of that. I will just say very quickly, um, I wanted to say a little bit more about it, but I'm going to truncate things a bit, that even when we get to something like the uh, like national defense, even here, there is, there is reason for skepticism. And I think, and I say this as somebody who years ago, I would have thought, if you say that the military budget should also be on the table, well, when you're talking about budget cuts, well, you must, you know, what kind of commie? Go back to Russia, you commie. That would have been my response. But then the more I've read about it, the more I think, well, wait a minute, now I feel like I'm being, I'm being taken advantage of here. You know, like now I feel like, you know, my, my former patriotism is now being exploited by people, and that, that's just not right. And so, for example, there's a, a lot of military analysts who've been around the Pentagon for years say this, that we've got this problem of the missing trillion bucks over the past roughly like nine or ten years. Since 9-11, since the Pentagon budget went up by a couple trillion dollars, and half of that went to the wars. But the question is, what happened to the other half? That's what a lot of, like, Winslow Wheeler and a lot of people who are not left liberals at all, they're asking, where did the other trillion go? And the reason they're asking that is that when you look at the state of things, like you look, they see that the, the combat air fleet is weighed down by, like, uh, 51% when it's got a, I think down by 43%, got a 51% budget increase, how can that be? How can the number of battle force ships in the Navy be down by 15%? Or the Army is up trivially, but the Army's budget is up substantially. Like how could this be? Where is the money going? And the institution, this is the one cabinet department that's not subject to audit. It's explicitly exempted from audit. So it's not to say that they fail the audit. This is nobody, we don't even know. We don't know, have contractors been paid once, twice, or not at all? Nobody knows. We don't know this. But we're, we're we, we're sort of told, well, you know, you can't mention that because that means you hate America or something. No, 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 no. I mean, I say this would be like the most important thing to look at. And then, moreover, there are there have been economic consequences of all this. And one of the points I make is there are certain incentives that a private firm faces on the free market. Those incentives are you've got to keep your costs low 
and you've got to keep the quality of your product super high. But these are not always the incentives that firms are operating under when their client or their major client becomes the Pentagon because although money is an issue, it's not like they could just spend you know, like a quintillion dollars on something, but they'll get the money one way or another. The more concerned is can, how well can you work with the military community? How well can you deal with the fact that we may be changing the design on you very frequently? I mean, this is a, a much greater concern. So a, a number of scholars have noted that the business model of these firms becomes, instead of cost minimization, becomes cost and subsidy maximization. So that once they then go back to the private sector, they've almost forgotten how to be a competitive firm again. And an example of this is what happened to the US machine tool industry, which was the envy of the world as, as recently as the 1960s. And then the Pentagon became its chief customer. And so we have first that a lot of the great research and development minds are being siphoned off into the government sector. And there's nobody replacing them. There's only a fixed number of geniuses. Some of them are doing this. They can't be doing R&D work. But also, the incentives they're operating under were very unhealthy. So that by the late 60s, the big thing was numerical control machine tool technology. And the Japanese developed it inexpensively. The Germans developed it inexpensively. The U.S. machine tool industry developed it, but so expensively that no private sector firm could buy it. And this, is, and, and this has been suggested, this is because they're operating under a whole, now the Pentagon could buy it and did, but they're operating under completely different incentives. I mean, these are issues that need to be considered. All this stuff has to be on the table. But ultimately, what we're talking about here is more than just about spending or balanced budgets or debt. Ultimately, it is about right and wrong. And here I want to close, but it's a long close, so I'm building up to something. Okay? I want to close with a little story from Robert Nozick. Robert Nozick, uh, the late Robert Nozick, was a Harvard philosopher who wrote a book in 1974, won a bunch of awards, called Anarchy, State, and Utopia. And I want to read to you, or, well, these are going to be my words, but they're his ideas. I want to read to you his tale of the slave. And it goes through nine stages, but they're very short. The tale of the slave runs like this. First, and he, he invites all of us to consider ourselves as the slave in the story. First stage, you are a slave at the mercy of a brutal master who forces you to work for his purposes and beats you arbitrarily. Second, the master decides to beat you only for breaking the rules and even grants you some free time. Third, you are part of a group of slaves subject to this master. He decides, on grounds acceptable to everyone, how goods should be allocated among you all. Fourth, the master requires his slaves to work only three days per week, granting them the other four days off. They can do as they wish during their free time. Fifth, the master now allows the slaves to work wherever they wish. His main caveat is that they must send him three-sevenths of their wages, corresponding to the three days' worth of work they once had to do on his land every week. In an emergency, he can force them to do his bidding once again, and he retains the power to alter the fraction of their wages to which he lays claim. Sixth, the master grants all 10,000 of his slaves, except you, the right to vote. They can decide among themselves how much of their and your earnings to take and what outlets to fund with the money. They can decide what you are and are not allowed to do. We can suppose for the sake of argument that the master irrevocably grants this right to the 10,000 slaves. You now have 10,000 masters or a single 10,000-headed master. 
Seventh, you are granted the freedom to try to persuade the 10,000 to exercise their vast powers in a particular way. You still do not have the right to vote, but you can try to influence those who do. Eighth, the 10,000 grant you the right to vote, but only to break a tie. You write down your vote, and if a tie should occur, they open it and record it. No tie has ever occurred. Ninth, you are granted the right to vote. But functionally, it simply means, as in the eighth stage, that in case of a tie, which has never occurred, your vote carries the issue. Nozick's question is this. At what stage between one and nine did this become something other than the tail of a slave? Well, that's an interesting unexamined question because it is an unexamined premise of our society across the American political spectrum that society cannot function without a single coercive institution with the power to dispose of the lives and fortunes of over 300 million individuals. While throwing the poor a few scraps in a thousand and one open and covert ways, this institution enriches various elites at the expense of the productive population. The more it grows, the worse it gets. More and more sectors of society conclude that they too must enrich themselves by means of government-granted privilege. Everyone begins to clamor for subsidies just in order to break even. The industrialists take, the farmers take, the scientists take, the military establishment takes, the social workers take, the education bureaucracy takes, everybody takes. All of this looting under cover of law is what Frederick Bastiat, the great 19th century French economist, memorably called legal plunder. No one considers it legitimate to stick a gun in his neighbor's ribs and take his things. Yet we are taught to believe that a dramatic moral difference separates that kind of open stealing with the indirect kind. In other words, when the government sticks a gun in your neighbor's ribs and hands the proceeds to you. Nozick put it like this. When you tax away from someone the fruits of five months of his labor, you are in effect taking away five months from him. You are taking away part of his life Dance around the issue all you like, but this is forced labor by any reasonable definition of the term. To be honest, when I said Harvard philosopher, you weren't expecting it to turn out quite as well. <laughs> is it so unimaginable to conceive of a society in which we finally put the guns down and deal with each other on the basis of reason and compassion rather than force. Bastiat once described the state as the great fictitious entity by which everyone seeks to live at the expense of everyone else. Well, this arrangement is coming to an end. Something is going to have to give. We're facing fiscal collapse. We may be confronting a currency collapse in which the dollar's purchasing power will fall precipitously over the course of a short period of time. And then there won't be anything left for the poor or for the pressure groups or for anyone else except a bunch of worthless promises. And every year the crisis is not addressed, the situation becomes all the worse. So in short, the propaganda with which we are flooded regarding how indispensable our wise overlords in Washington is, this is unworthy of a sixth grade. We would not die instantly were it not for the constant oversight of our overlords in Washington. We would flourish. And here's the proof. Thank you all very much.
All right, so that was the talk. And now before we get to my commentary 10 years later, let me say a quick word on behalf of one of the most important sponsors I've ever had, and that's BetterHelp. Folks, let me tell you something. You are not alone. If you feel like something is keeping you from being happy, something's preventing you from reaching your goals, or you're struggling with depression, anxiety overwhelms you, you're dealing with family conflicts, you can't sleep, whatever it is, almost anything you can think of that is interfering with your mental health, you are not alone in it, and something can indeed be done. At BetterHelp, you get matched with a licensed professional therapist who's perfectly suited to you and what you are facing. You have access to a broad range of expertise, which may not be available in your local area. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, and it's just convenient, and it's affordable, professional, everything you're looking for. And you can see for yourself when you check out the testimonials on their site. And in fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Well, I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com woods. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash woods. All right, so that was the talk. Now, as I look back on that, something stands out to me. There's a section in the book Rollback about science and government involvement in science and the potential problems with that. Now, that was a hard sell 10 years ago. Even conservatives I would talk to would think, well, I agree with you, Woods, that government needs to be smaller, but for heaven's sake, be reasonable. Of course, we need the government to do X, Y, and Z. And I am not that kind of guy. I am not an, of course, we need the government to do X, Y, and Z kind of guy. I always want to know what are the costs of government doing X, Y, and Z. It's not all benefit. If all you can see is the finished product of something government does, then you're missing the key thing, which is the cost. Where would those resources that government used have gone otherwise? But when it comes to science, it's even worse than that. Because now I think after having lived through over a year of the Fauci regime, it's not that hard to see what happens when the state comes to dominate science and dominate medical priorities We've seen the results. Everybody's on board with Fauci. The respectable people are on board with Fauci. A lot of people who are knowledgeable and who are in a position to dissent from Fauci are too afraid to speak up because the consensus has formed around the Faucian position. There are a handful of people who have spoken out in spite of the pressure not to. But in general, it's incredible to see how people and institutions have folded under the pressure of, frankly, this state-inspired madness of lockdowns and all the rest of it. So what was once a hard sell is a much, much easier sell now because people, I think, now are saying, yeah, <laughs> guess I do see the problem. I guess I do see the problem that we privilege one particular point of view, and that's almost inevitable. If the state is involved in science, one point of view is going to be privileged. One point of view is going to get the grant money and whatever. Because for one thing, a politician doesn't want to have to try to explain, well, why are you funding six different approaches? You know, why don't you just fund the consensus one? So that's exactly what they do. And then they demonize all the other approaches. And you think, oh, well, the truth is bound to win out. The state can't suppress the truth. And yeah, I suppose in the very long run, that's probably true. But just the other day in my email newsletter, I shared a chart showing hospitalizations. This goes back to... October 2020 to right now, and I'm talking to you in May of 2021, it's a chart of hospitalizations, and it traces out hospitalizations in the 25 least strict lockdown states, 
and then has another line for the 25 most strict lockdown states. And would you believe the lines are borderline indistinguishable? Now that alone, that answers it. That's it. That's, that's the end of the discussion right there. That ought to be the end of the discussion. Not to mention there are many other charts as well. And let me interrupt myself to say that I've been saying for a while that what we need is a series of charts, is a quiz that people can take who believe that you know, what we've been told, that of course the interventions are what are helping to make things better than they would be otherwise. And if we see rising case or hospitalization or death numbers, that's because people are behaving badly and all that, you know, they, they, they believe the propaganda. If that's the case, then my quiz should be a breeze for you. Okay, so I've thought we should have a quiz where I'll say, all right, which one of these places had a mask mandate? There's no way you can tell by looking at that. Here are 12 states. One of them opened completely. Uh, here's a chart of their health outcomes. Can you pick which one is the one that opened completely? And of course, they all look the same. And at some point, you'd think people, with charts like this staring you in the face, people would change their minds. Now, I'm hopeful that there will be some who will. But man, it's been precious few so far. Well, anyway, this very week, we're going to be launching that thing. It's ready to go. It's interactive. So uh, on some of them, it'll say, all right, here's the past year in such and such country. Click where you think mask usage really ramped up. Just click anywhere on this graph. See how close you come. Or um, here's a bunch of states. We're not going to give you the dates or anything. I want you to try to pick out where Thanksgiving is on this chart, because remember that Thanksgiving is supposed to be followed by a big spike. Okay, we'll look at the chart, see where the big spike is, and maybe that's Thanksgiving. And of course, it's not. The Midwest, it's not. So this quiz should make open-minded people think. Now, where is the quiz? I will give you the, the domain name uh, this week, as soon as it's live. It's just about to go live, but we finally did it. We did it. I, I put a lot of work into this with a computer guy, because I, I know the numbers, but I don't know how to make a nice quiz that's interactive and stuff like that. But it's going to be beneficial. But the thing is that there hadn't been a state that has a vested interest in keeping people panicked, keeping people looking to the state for solutions. This is true of all kinds of problems. They want us to be panicked and looking to them for solutions. If that hadn't been the case, I do believe there would have been a variety of responses. There would have been a, a, a lot of free, robust discussion about what exactly the right course of action was. But when the state says, here is our foremost expert, you listen to him, that distorts everything. And not to mention, the problem also is that there's no expert who knows everything about everything. Even if you have an expert who knows an awful lot about one thing, that expert doesn't know, in a case like this, how do you balance your concern about X with other people's legitimate concerns about Y, Z, A, B, C, D, and E. Well, none of these experts, so-called, have taken a class in how to balance those concerns. So now we have a superstitious reverence for an expert who is trotted out by the state apparatus. And because he's trotted out by the state apparatus, he's shown a certain kind of veneration, and he is not contradicted. And especially because you guys listen to this show and or you read my newsletter, well, I don't need to review the craziness of the government science with you and the so-called the laughable CDC guidelines. Now they've got these crazy guidelines for summer camps and there can be no sports and you have to be masked outdoors and you have to be six feet apart. This is just dystopian. It doesn't do anything. All right, why don't we have some summer camps where they don't do any of this and basically everybody in this country knows there won't be a difference. We absolutely, we know there won't be a difference. 
It's almost like some of them are dying for their not to be control groups because they, for some reason, they don't want it to be made obvious that these things don't do anything. And I might add, it took the CDC forever to admit certain things that were known pretty early. Like you can tell people that they don't have to be you know, spraying their groceries uh, or the packages they get in the mail or they don't have to be constantly sanitizing everything or when you check in at a hotel and they have sanitized pens and then dirty pens. That Dirty pens mean someone touched them. That, that this is silly. You don't need to do this. The, the virus is not spreading from pens. That surfaces are not how the spread is happening. It took them forever to almost timidly admit that. And then now there's a little bit of movement on outdoor masking, but the CDC is, is saying that you have to be vaccinated to not have to be masked outdoors. This is crazy. Even Scott Gottlieb, who I think was the head of the FDA for a few years and who's been a real panicker about the virus, even he's saying it's time to start thinking about dropping these mask requirements, not even just outdoors. It's time to just start thinking about dropping them. We're waiting for the CDC to catch up with this. Then meanwhile, we have some scientists saying, yeah, I don't know really where they got that six-foot rule, six feet apart. It's almost like they made it up. Well, doggone it, it's still, quote, CDC guidelines, as you see on every sign and every store you go to. So anyway, I, I bring all this up because you just heard me talk about a whole bunch of things, and there's a sliver of that book that I'm talking about that covers science, and that was the one where I thought I would have the toughest, let's say the most resistance. But now I think people are more likely to say, yeah, there are dangers in having the state so involved in science. Finally, we've endured something unbelievable this year, and just unbelievable over the past year, what's happened to us, and that it would go on this long. And I want to invite you to join me in Orlando, October 16th, for what promises to be a night of great fun and hilarity and making new friends. It's the 2000th episode event that I've been telling you about. And I have the sign up now. It doesn't cost you anything. You can, you get in for free. It's taking place at a beautiful resort. You're going to love it. We even have a special room rate, although the rooms are going really fast. In fact, I just remembered I have to make sure I reserve rooms for all my speakers because if you guys take all the rooms before I get them for my speakers, that'd be a problem. So I'm going to make sure I get that done immediately. But anyway, we're going to have some of your favorites from the Tom Wood Show, and we're just going to have a ton of fun like human beings. We're going to enjoy a couple of hours worth of great entertainment. I'm going to have a couple of special guests. You're going to cheer, and you're going to be surrounded by people who have not had their brains warped by propaganda. And you're going to be so glad you made the effort to come out to this thing. And for those of you who belong to the Supporting Listeners program, I got a special reception just for you before the event takes place. And then the event is for the general public, for anybody at all. But I have a special reception to say thank you to all the supporting listeners. And I have a super duper duper deluxe special reception for you folks who are at the platinum level or higher in the supporting listeners uh, group. Uh, you can hang out with me and with all the special guests of the evening in the hospitality suite before the, the general reception and before the big event. So I got a lot of things, but as I say, to get into the event at 8 p.m. October 16th does not cost you a thing. Just get over there and join us. Be part of this. A ton of people are signed up already, and I really think it's going to be the event of the year. Now, that's not saying a lot because there aren't that many libertarian events going on this year. 
But nevertheless, I, th I think it's going to be the best one. We're, we're just going to have an absolute blast. It's going to be fun. There's not going to be that much learning, I warn you, okay? The learning takes place here on the Tom Wood Show. The 2000th episode is going to be more of a celebration. We're going to have some, I don't want to give it all away, but you are not going to regret going. So please spread the word. The website is tomwoods2000.com. It's not tomwoods.com slash 2000. It's tomwoods2000.com. I really, really, really would be delighted to have you there. So if you can possibly swing it, head over to tomwoods2000.com or at the very least, help me spread the word about the event on social media, through your contacts, whatever you can do to help me out. As I say, I'm paying the bill for this event because this, this event is a thank you to the folks who made it possible for me to release 2,000 episodes, namely the folks like you who consume them and enjoy them. So this is my gift to you. So enjoy that, tomwoods2000.com. I'll see you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.